Hello and welcome to the Folklore Scotland podcast. Every two weeks we're going to be bringing you the best of Scottish folklore. Folklore Scotland is a charity founded to protect and preserve Scottish folklore through taking a multimedia approach to compiling and sharing folktales, telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Folklore Scotland podcast. Originally for this episode we were going to focus on some tales from our own local areas but when we sat down to plan this episode we realised that 3 out of 6 of us had brought stories about various white lady ghosts so we decided to bring all these together and do a whole episode dedicated to the white lady ghosts of our local areas. We have today myself, Rebecca, and Rasheen and Mila. You might also hear a couple of other voices. We also have Lindley, David and Graham joining us for the discussion parts of the podcast. So for, so I'm talking about the Dundee White Lady, um, which is associated with the West End of Dundee, um, around the Balgay Hill area. And I want to do just a wee trigger warning on this one because it does involve um, suicide. So if you're not comfortable with that subject matter, I'd recommend just skipping over my bit. So growing up in the West End of Dundee, we had a white lady ghost story that revolved around the bridge on Balgay Hill. Uh, Balgay Hill is the main woodland park area in the west of the city. And it basically consists of one hill with a narrow valley in the middle of it, um, which is called the Windy Lake. On the west side, there's a graveyard called Balgay Cemetery, or formerly the Western Necropolis, which is just a far better name. And on the east side is a woodland and an observatory. The cemetery and park were both both opened in 1870, and the cemetery was built up around the natural features of the hill, so it makes for a really nice walk, and there are some really interesting graves there. My favourite one on the west side is up near the top. There's this mound with stairs leading up to the top of it, and it's flat at the top. And around the side, there are these marble memorials that look like sleep with uh, they look like they have a sleeping bishop on them, but they kind of look regal and kingly to me. If you go up the stairs above these memorials and onto the plateau, there's a Celtic cross and a and someone usually builds a wee cairn up there or lays a little candle on the cross, and it always just feels really magical. And the first time I stumbled across it, I lost my mind because I thought I was about to discover a fairy or the tomb of an ancient king or Excalibur or something. So the reason I got so excited the first time I saw this cool looking grave was because Balgay Hill has been shrouded in mystery for most of my life. I grew up hearing stories about the hill and the fae and the witches and the ghosts that supposedly lived up there. Um, one in particular we're going to come to. I never really went up there myself, either because I didn't need to or I was too afraid to. And in primary school, there were these two boys who were obsessed with the white lady and they would actively go on ghost hunts and try and get her on camera. And they had these big printed out laminated pictures of the bridge and they would point to little specks of light and be like, there she is. Um, whereas on the opposite end of the spectrum, on the odd occasion my family would be in the park, I would just straight up refuse to look at that bridge because I was scared of seeing the white lady. Uh, it was only in 2015 when my family got a dog that I really started to explore the hill. So even then, well into being a young adult, there was this almost sinister mysticism about it. And on top of this, it's also been an area connected with a number of thefts, suicides and assaults. So um, it doesn't have the best reputation going for it anyway. The main story that I think everyone in the, lo in the local area knows, or at least knows some version of, is the one about the white lady. It's quite sparse, it's definitely not one that's hugely documented online, 
It's very folkloric in that sense, and it's spread mostly by word of mouth, so I'll do my best to recount a couple of versions I know, um, but this is definitely not exhaustive, and so many people have different versions of it. So, the main characters in every version of the story are a woman, who will inevitably become a ghost, and the bridge that connects the east and the west side of the hill over the gorge that she will inevitably drop to her death from. Before talking about the different versions, I wanted to give some brief history about the bridge itself because part of its history plays into the folklore um, and explains how the stories may have come about. The footbridge is cast iron and it was constructed in 1872 and then closed in 2002 due to public safety concerns and then it was refurbished and reopened in 2008. The new bridge is very nice. It's bright blue, it's nicely painted, it's unvandalised um, when I eventually crossed it for the first time in 2015, I was like, this is meant to be creepy. It's not. Um, this is a podcast, so I can't show you any, any pictures, but if you Google old pictures of Balgay Bridge before it gets renovated, you'll understand why it has such a spooky reputation. It was old, rusty looking, brown, covered in moss. The side rail was three and a half foot, but in 1904 it was heightened to six feet with a wire fencing and these big ugly archway gates um, at either end. The drop from the bridge to the ground is 42 feet and 6 inches, but even so, the fact that they felt the need to do this in the first place speaks to how many accidents there may have been. Interestingly, the safety gate isn't something the renovated bridge has, so clearly there hasn't been a need for it in recent years. So there are two main storylines to this legend. One revolves around the young woman on the bridge falling by either being pushed or jumping herself and the other revolves around her being hanged. In the version of her story that I grew up with, she was a young woman crossing the bridge at night and the witch that lived in the hut on the cemetery side of the bridge basically didn't want her to be there, so she came out and hung her from the bridge. There's another version where she just pushes her off and she falls to her death. And there's another version where the young woman has recently been widowed and she takes herself onto the bridge and either throws herself from it or hangs herself. There isn't much time spent on her character, just the, the kind of circumstance that she's in and her death, um, because it is an oral tale told to children that live in the local area, basically warding them off um, being in, Bal in the Balgay area on the bridge in the park um, at night, which might speak to the real world dangers that the hill has, um, like I said, with the assaults and the thefts that have been there. The versions where the white lady fell, it said that there's a boulder beneath the bridge that you can make out a mark on it where she struck her head. And that's a real life thing and people can point it today and say, oh look, there's where she hit her head. Um, which is quite nice. It's nice to have a kind of tangible piece of folklore in there. And the consequences for visiting the white lady's bridge at night are more or less the same in every version. You can hear her scream as she plummets to the ground. You might also see her standing guard or looming at the opposite end of the bridge. Sometimes, especially in the version I know, it was far more sinister and the consequences for crossing the bridge were that the white lady would hang you herself or push you off in the way that she perished. There are a couple of real life women who might be connected with the white lady's origin. In his book Haunted Dundee, Jeff Fraser points to two women who committed suicide by jumping from the bridge. Um, Janet Fenton died on the 9th of November 1882, aged 59, and she's believed to have died instantly on impact with the ground, while Christina Fraser, who died in 1911, aged 53, lived for four days in hospital before succumbing to her injuries. Jeff Fraser's book gives a bit of information on the two women. Janet's death was reported in The Scotsman on the 10th of November, 
where it's reported that she was a widow. Her husband had a really gruesome death. Um, he was a mechanic and he died after being scalded in a mill pond several years before and she was reportedly never the same since which obviously plays into the angle that we hear about the white lady being a widow who throws herself from the bridge. Christina fell from the bridge uh, on 12th of May 1911 and according to Jeff's book two boys were cycling and they found her clinging to the bridge but they weren't able to get to her before she let go and she was apparently a mill worker and interestingly her death came after the safety fence was put in place so she actually managed to climb over it. I really like that even though we don't know much about the white lady and her story varies so widely that she really is feared and respected in the local area. There's not many people in the West End um, that don't know who she is and I know that when I cross the bridge I definitely mutter a wee greeting or give a little nod of respect just to be sure because you never know. Bridges are often associated with ghosts that have met their death by falling off of the bridge um, as she has but I also find it interesting that the bridge in this case is literally a kind of bridge between the living world and the dead world. Um, you've got the park uh, on the east side of the hill, which is the land of leisure. It's got football pitches and dog walking paths and observatory. And it comes to meet the land of the dead, which is the cemetery um, on this bridge. Um, Balgay Park is a Victorian creation and the Victorians heavily associated the west um, with death and the east with beginnings and new life which could be a reason why the cemetery was built on the west side. You could argue that she's the guardian of the dead, um, or even a bit like the Grim Reaper or Chiron from Greek mythology, kind of taking souls who cross her bridge from the living side to the dead side, which is quite a deep way of looking at it. She really is just more of an urban legend, um, a kind of cautionary tale for going into Balgay Park at night. But it's, uh, it's nice to kind of think that after the woman who was maybe responsible for the legend unfortunately took her own life that she's kind of found a role or a kind of deeper symbolism that's great you know like i never uh grew up in dundee i don't know if you can tell from my astoundingly native accent but you know it's like having stories like that urban legends you know they're just as common everywhere around the world and part of you thinks you know how much of this is real and how much isn't when you're a kid it's just so real to know you don't go into that woods or you don't go into the to the Balgay bridge at nighttime because the ghost will get you and it's just like so it's so good knowing that that's a shared thing that everyone has around the world that there's some kind of story to keep us all safe i found it interesting that you've decided to put in the the bits about like the kind of real worldly people that could have been behind it Mainly because all the way through I was thinking that bridge is not that high. So I was <laughs> questioning whether someone could jump off it and die, but there you go. Yeah. Well, one of them did, the other one didn't. So it does show... It was... They're not the only one. Those were the two women um, that they can trace, but there's also been a lot of men who have uh, jumped off it and So it's not, not survived. quite as romantic a bridge as I took it to be when I first came to Dundee. <laughs> there's a lot of love locks on the bridge. It's just funny. It's got such a like juxtaposition because it is quite a nice looking bridge. But I knew it to start with as the ghost bridge. Like, it's spooky. Don't cross it. But it's now kind of the Paris bridge of the West End of Dundee. As everybody does say, you know, Dundee is the Paris of Britain, I guess. So. Yeah, you know, the, <laughs> the Tay is practically the Seine. We're grand. Yeah, I also really appreciated the kind of historical element there because so many um, folklore stories that we have have absolutely no physical tie. Or if it does have a physical tie to the land, it's something after the story's been put into place. 
So it just makes it feel a lot more real thinking that these were they could have been real women that this uh, story is kind of branched out around. I like the way you as well you did the, the ties in with like this is the story that there's the ghost there and that like, this happened but this could be the reason behind it like there's always been kind of crime and it's been a slightly dodgier area to go you wouldn't want the children kind of going there which I've always seen a kind of distinction in my head between ghost stories and folk tales and I've never been able to quite find what that line is but I think here it's for me folk tales tend to have something in them that explain something or try to impart a lesson of some sorts and in this one they've got that kind of position of oh scary person coming from this kind of supernatural thing mm-hmm. to an actual real world consequence reason or consequence for why that could be there i think that's why you find so many scottish folk stories in particular are based around war because it's so dangerous to wee kids but they don't appreciate it so it's all you know don't do this the kelpie's gonna get you or you know whatever it is it's the same you know it's all don't walk through the woods at night or this witch is gonna get you you know whatever it is it's the same sort of thing exactly yeah it's it's all moralistic or cautionary i do have to appreciate that it seems like the witches and our fairies and our other folks get the best real estate you know up on the hill (laughs) nice view but uh still dangerous I have to say, despite the spookiness, it is probably one of the most beautiful graveyards I've ever seen. It's it just, is stunning. It's such a wonderful walk. Yeah. She's definitely one of our more sinister characters as well, that she takes people even to this day. Uh, I think previous spirits we've talked about have been a bit kinder to the living. I suppose the real question, though, that we have to ask, does anyone here believe in ghosts? <laughs> I have had too many weird things happen. I used to work in castles. And just the amount of, like, one Kelly Castle in Fife, it's not even a particularly haunted castle, and I had to sit on my own downstairs for, like, two hours while I waited for a band to arrive for an evening event, and there was just so many creaks and bumps and, like, noises upstairs, and I was like, I am not leaving this gift shop. You will never guess what story I'll be sharing tonight. That's right, The White Lady. Uh, This ghost, however, haunts the cobbled streets of St. Andrews. As Again, as you might tell, St. Andrews isn't exactly my hometown, but I do like to think of it as the closest town to my heart. Even though I lived in Dundee, St. Andrews is where I was first had to be an adult. And it's just a really beautiful town that I feel a really strong connection with. Anyway, for such a small town, St. Andrews is full of ghost stories. They are particularly popular with the students. And many have seen one ghostly apparition or another during late night wanderings through the town. Whether or not the alcohol had anything to do with this, I'll leave up to you. I think St. Andrews makes such a good setting for ghost stories because its past is so obvious. You can't walk up one street or another without seeing some sort of ruin. Perhaps one of the most famous is the cathedral. Work began on the building in 1158 and continued for over a century. As the religious capital of Scotland, before the Reformation, of course, the cathedral played an important role both in St Andrews and for Scotland as a whole. The area itself was built on top of the older St Regulus or St Rule church, of which remains only the square tower. Of course, all this changed in 1559. A group of Protestants overran and ransacked the cathedral. 
brought into a frenzy by the preachings of John Knox. They destroyed the interior of the building and the cathedral never truly recovered, becoming a quarry for the town. Now, all that's left is a few crumbling arches and St. Rule's large square tower. I tell you this as nothing else adds an air of mysticism like a dark past full of destruction. Anyway, on to our tale. At least one student every year claims to have run into her. I never had the honor myself, but I was also not brave enough to go out seeking her like some other people I knew. The lady has been spotted wandering the town since the 1800s. She's described as being a beautiful, slim woman with long black hair who wears a long white dress and white gloves. Sometimes she's wearing a veil or reading a book. All the stories agree on one thing. She is luminous. Witnesses have never been harmed by the lady, and most sightings depict her gliding mournfully through the cathedral and surrounding roads. Historical legends tell us that fishermen and locals would avoid the cathedral, which towers over the old pier, when walking home at night, repelled by the oppressive fear surrounding the place, and by the chance that the lady might be waiting around any dark corner. Nowadays, with bright street lighting, you'd think the legend of the lady would have vanished, another ghost story lingering only on informational signs in the ruin. Maybe it's just my own craving for the fantastical, but you won't catch me risking a moonlit jaunt around the rubble. Like with all good ghost stories, it's that little kernel of truth that leaves the listener wondering if maybe, just maybe, it might be true. Set snugly into the cathedral's northern wall stands a small, square tower. If you're feeling brave, you might even stretch a hand into the gun loop. Be warned, though, this is the final resting place of the white lady herself, and she might take offense and stretch her hand right back. But it was here, in 1868, that stonemasons working on the preserving the exterior peered into the tower and spotted what looked like a coffin. They cracked the tower open, revealing a number of well-preserved bodies, including the body of a dark-haired woman wearing a white dress and white leather gloves. Finding bodies in a cathedral is not in itself surprising. Uh, one, a cathedral which champions a rather impressive graveyard. What was surprising was finding them so far away from the other tombs. Some historians suggest that the bodies are ancient reliquaries from the Church of St. Rule. It was common practice then to preserve the bodies of saints and display them in altars. Their movement could have been a last effort by the monks to protect them from pillaging Protestants. Local historian Richard Falconer begs to differ, though. Falconer also runs a very popular ghost tour in St. Andrews, and I highly recommend it to visiting tourists. In his book, St. Andrews Mystery, Falconer theorizes that the bodies recovered from the tower were far older than first believed. Yes, they were brought in as reliquaries, but they were, in fact, Celtic era saints, predating the year 100 AD. The evidence for this is the wood and fir coffins housing the bodies. This style of burial, he claims, dates from earlier religious practices. What really draws excitement, though, is the potential of treasure, as always. Falconer believes that the bodies mark the entrance of an underground crypt system. This would not be unusual, as many cathedrals have some kind of underground chamber. Treasure hunters have long discussed the possibility that the treasures housed within the cathedral were not all destroyed. So maybe the white lady isn't wandering aimlessly, but guarding the treasure she was left to protect. 
Personally, I love the story of the white lady. I empathize with her. Like any other student on stress walks, pre or post exam, she just kind of wants to be left alone. Even if she's a figment conjured by too many nights of no sleep mixed with a hearty dose of whatever alcohol is cheapest, it's nice that the spirituality of the ruin is being channeled into something. So many times when you walk through Scotland's national parks or even just wandering through the countryside, you come across these crumbling stone ruins. Maybe they date back 500 years. Maybe they're just bothies built 10 years ago and in desperate need of repair. But if it's a real ruin, that was once someone's life. And it might just be me, but I swear you can feel it. Plus, there's so many places that we do have information on, but so many others that we just don't. So we don't know who stood where we stood right now in the year 100. Anyway, that's probably just the history major in me. On the other hand, isn't the foundation of all ghost stories really years of emotion and pain and life in one place culminating in the paranormal? So for me, it's nice whenever I come across a story like The White Lady, because it means other people feel the same thing when they come across a ruin and feel the need to create a story to match it. That was lovely. I love how it's so, she's more sympathetic. Like, most ghost stories are told either, you know, to freak people out straight up or, you know, as um, the White Lady in Dundee to caution them. But like you say, she's just minding her own business. Just an elegant dead lady out on a stroll. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she just wants to take in the sights like any other tourist. And protecting her treasure. Yeah, might be. Which I didn't realize there was a St. Andrew's treasure before I started researching into her. And now part of me wants to go and like break into the cathedral at night and try and find it. You know, national treasure at like Nicolas Cage. Has nobody done excavations under the kind of bits where the bodies were found? Or It's weird because tracking back, I tried to, I, I felt the same. I'm like, surely there should be more. Um, the last big excavation was in the 1900s and it was run by a professor who after he died it just kind of fell apart and a lot of the cathedral itself things that have been excavated have then been filled in by builders and so on so I'm not really sure it's it's a bit of a mess looking back into the the map of excavations anyway and since it's run now by um historic Scotland there's not really much chance I think of really digging into it but the possibility is very enchanting my Sorry. friend's dad is a stonemason for Historic Scotland in St Andrews. So he can maybe get us access for your Nicholas Cage style <laughs> treasure. <laughs> this is a disclaimer Folklore Scotland does not support uh, or intend to induct a heist in St Andrews. You can't stop me, Rebecca. <laughs> you didn't see anything. Is the bodies still in the kind of chamber or are they being moved elsewhere? believe so again it's kind of hard to tell because there's so many sources that say yes there are bodies in there and they're documented and then there's others that say there were never any bodies in there so it's quite difficult um from the sources i had access to anyway uh but i believe that yes there is a, like it's a small tower built into this to the wall um the graveyard surrounds it and it would not be surprising to find out that it was a crypt you know, there's stories about the white lady who say that she was a, a grieving widow whose lover was beheaded um, and she was interred there. You know, the uh, plague victims were interred uh, in crypts as well. So she could have been a victim of a plague. Um, but I think it's just the, the coffins uh, 
being, you know, made of fur and these bodies being incredibly well preserved, despite the fact that they were so old, made people kind of attach more of a fantastical meaning to them. But again, you know, the stories about the White Lady were around well before they discovered any kind of crypt. So I don't know how much of that is stemming off the discovery or how much of the White Lady herself was affecting what people found. We should go on a ghost hunt, find her and ask her. I just think I could be her friend. Also, as a White Lady. (laughs) (laughs) I bet she's sick and tired of, like, drunk students trying to go on ghost hunts and find her. I bet if you just went up to her and said, look, I'm just going to sit here, mind my own business as well. She'd be like, yeah, pull up a chair. I guess the only thing I quite enjoyed about the White Lady again was that there's nothing really malicious. So what we were saying earlier about um, Dundee's White Lady, you know, being a warning to children to stay away from this area. This story makes me kind of want to believe in ghosts that much more because, you know, like she's there's no reason behind her being there other than, you know, the mysticism surrounding the church and the fact that it was destroyed. And I, again, you walk into a ruin and you really want there to be ghosts. She's definitely much more sympathetic. It seems too as though she's, she's there, she's kind of a remembrance and maybe it's out of love, you know, some kind of grief or, you know, she's lingering there for a reason, but it, it definitely doesn't have that same kind of malevolence that the other story had. It's interesting to see that contrast. Yeah, it's definitely just so rom- romantic for me anyway, to imagine if uh, what Falconer said was right about this woman, this woman from 100 AD, just watching the world go by and seeing everything that's happening around her all from the same spot. Gonna write a movie on it. I'm thinking that all the St. Andrew's ghosts are like friends in some way. That is a sitcom waiting to happen. So these next stories kind of intertwine. Um, but are also quite closely linked to the St Andrew's story that we just um, heard. Um, and they're situated in, well, one of them is situated in Brody Ferry, and that's close to Dundee, which was the first story from tonight. Um, so Brody Ferry has Claypot's Castle, um, not to be confused with Brody Ferry Castle, which is normally on the postcards. Um, but Claypot's Castle is about 20 minutes walk down the road. And there's another white lady that dwells there, uh, especially during the spring, and she's often seen standing by a window Um, facing St Andrews and waving her handkerchief, waiting for her lover to return. Uh, The ghostly lady is thought to be Marion Ogilvie, uh, who is the daughter of Lord Ogilvie of Airlie um, and a mistress to Cardinal David Beaton, who you may know uh, as the Archbishop of St Andrews. Um, They lived in Ethy Castle near Arbroath and then later in St Andrews Castle, though their relationship was often criticised because the Cardinal was a Catholic clergyman and he was supposed to practise celibacy. Uh, and he didn't, so this was quite frowned upon um, by the locals. However, their relationship also didn't last very long. Um, The Cardinal was unfortunately assassinated in St Andrews in May of 1546, uh, and he was also the last Cardinal um, prior to the Reformation in 1560. So back to Claypot's castle across in Brody Ferry. Funnily enough, there actually wasn't much going on there in 1560, because despite the legend of Marion being in Claypot's castle. The castle wasn't built until, well, it was built between the dates of 1569 and 1588, as were the dates that were carved in the stones of the castle, meaning that the construction started almost a decade after the Cardinal's death. 
So a lot of people are doubting whether this white lady is Marion Ogilvie. And what they suspect is that she is another lady by a similar first name uh, or a similar surname. So the second Marion, um, who is said to dwell at Claypot's castle, uh, may actually be connected to one of the owners of the castle. So John Graham of Claverhouse, whose family bought the castle in 1601. Um, he is the seventh laird of Claverhouse and most commonly recognisable as Bonnie Dundee. Uh, so if you're a fan of Sir Walter Scott, you may recognise Bonnie Dundee as the title of a poem he wrote in 1825 um, in his honour. So Bonnie Dundee um, is also a Scottish folk tune, um, so a lot of you may recognise it from that. So the story itself, it's quite surprising that Marion would have returned, or Marion's ghost would have returned to Claypot's castle after her death, because the castle was also rumoured to be the site of many satanic rituals and also so-called demonic orgies, <laughs> which were mostly led by John Graham. And it's said that during some of these parties and rituals, um, he made a pact with the devil that gave him the gift of invulnerability. And this was especially useful for battle. Um, he didn't want to be killed in battle. Um, but unfortunately, the loophole was that the one thing that could kill him was a silver bullet. And during the Battle of Killiecrankie, if I'm mispronouncing that, I hope I'm not, um, or the Battle of Rinrory Rin uh, in Perth in 1689, uh, a bullet hit a silver button in his clothing, pushing it into his chest, and that killed him. So how is that for a loophole for somebody who made a pact with the devil to stay alive? I think the devil has a way of um, always reclaiming his souls. Um, but it said that Bonnie Dundee returned to Claypot's castle, um, or returns to Claypot's castle every year on May 29th, and he can be seen dwelling the grounds um, and there's also reports of screams and the sound of horses nearby. And this is quite strange because it's actually the same day that Cardinal Beaton was killed, May 29th. So as it turns out, the two men were linked um, through a marriage line. So the Cardinal's sister married into John Graham's family, uh, given this quite a bizarre twist to the stories that surround Claypot's castle. Yeah, so it's a very bizarre twist for Claypot's castle. And it's said that at the end of May every year, May 29th, some people even claim to have seen the devil himself at the site, uh, presumably returning to Earth to claim the spirit of Bonnie Dundee uh, as he escapes every year. That's so cool at the end about Bonnie Dundee escaping every year and the, and the devil just chasing him. Has to come collect him, but he supposedly lets him, uh, lets him return. Maybe that was part of the loophole, part of the deal. He's, uh, he's allowed to return. They say the devil's in the details, and here he definitely was with those silver buttons. <laughs> Awful pun. <laughs> I like that. You can go inside Claypot's castle, but you're very restricted in the rooms that you can go into. Obviously, we're not talking COVID scenario, but just every day um, outside of COVID times. Um, you can visit some of the rooms. I think you can go in the room where the window faces St. Andrew's. Uh, so maybe if you go uh, May 29th, you might see some ghosts. I would like to think it's closed on May 29th. <laughs> <laughs> or because the current owners have got to deal with the devil as well, and they like that he comes every May 29th. They, you know? They've got a satanic orgy to attend. Yeah, they have a big satanic orgy. <laughs> I really like how we've got, uh, you know, a warning story of the white lady, one connected to spirituality, and now we've got this one that's created, like connected to and curses and things i just think that's so interesting you're really covering the 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 general origins of all ghosts they're coming from one of those three sources you know i actually think that the white lady in rasheen's story would have maybe crossed paths 
with the white lady in my story because they lived in roughly the same time because both stories mention the reformation in 1560 uh and both of them were alive for that it was um well the cardinal was assassinated before that he was in 1546 but the other people from the stories they, they were around in 1560 that's definitely when uh the white lady story kind of took off a little bit more um definitely like recorded sightings since 1800s uh but before that you know people have it's been local legend for a really long time but i do find it very interesting um you know because the murder of the cardinal um his murder was so violent and the the people who assassinated him were camped out in the castle for a really long time before they were also murdered you know pretty violently so you know you're gonna have ghost stories coming out of that just because it would have been so shocking for everyone in the town. The Folklore Scotland podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, the charity that seeks to tell the tales of the past with the technology of today. You can visit our website at www.folklorescotland.com. If you're keen to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, send us an email at info@folklorescotland.com. You can also find all of our social media links and a complete list of sources for today's topics in the show notes. Your hosts today were Rebecca, Rasheen and Mila, and a shout out to David, Graham and Lindley for joining in this week's discussion. If you want to hear more about stories from Scotland, be sure to check out Graham's Instagram page, Scotland Stories. The link is in the show notes. This week's intro music was by Kevin McLeod, and many thanks to Lindley for providing this episode's artwork. You can find Lindley's website and social media in the show notes as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>